I read about a preacher who had preached a sermon on this text. And he opened up sort of pounding the pulpit and challenging his people and saying, Jesus once fed two people with 5,000 loaves and 2,000 uh, 2, fish. How many of you can do that? And everybody raised their hands because feeding two people with 5,000 uh, fish and two loaves is no problem for most people. <laughs> and he realized what he's done and the congregation encouraged him. Hey, it's okay, you, you, can, you can do this again. And he came back and he, he preached again. He pounded the pulpit this time. He says, Jesus once fed 5,000 men with five loaves and bread and two fish. How many of you can do that? And one man stood up and said, I can do that. And the young preacher was incredulous. And the man said, I just used some of the fish left over from last week, uh, from last week's topic of 5,000 fish and 2,000 loaves of bread. And so, but we have this story and it's an incredible story. Uh, that, as I said, all gospel writers seem to have an interest in telling us. But it's also one that is rife with really important symbolism. It's rife with a few really unique details uh, that I hope uh, we can unpack today. But it tells us a few things. The first is to, to, to note is really the compassion of Jesus in the midst of this. And, it, and in this might be actually why these stories told right after the John the Baptist story. Because it is a stark contrast between Jesus as a leader of his people and Herod as a leader of the nation. It's in the shadow of a story of a man motivated completely by his own reputation. The shadow of a story that is full of violence and abuses of power, a shadow of a story removed of so much of humanity. And Jesus, in a moment where he is grieving and wanting to get away from the crowd, which he eventually will. So any sort of discussion of like, Jesus didn't have any boundaries, therefore we shouldn't either. Jesus will eventually hightail it out of town. Uh, uh, but in this moment, he is seeking to be alone, he is grieving, and the people do follow him. And in that moment where I don't know how much compassion I would have if somebody so close to me, a family member had died, and in that moment, the crowds just want more. And Jesus has compassion in that moment. It's this really great sort of in his gut compassion for them. Because it says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And then by verse 16, after the disciples are like, hey, let's send them away, Jesus is like, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. He, he seems concerned. Even though it's a perfectly reasonable request to go send them home and let them go get food at home. And Jesus is like, no, we're, we're gonna feed them. And compassion seems to be the starting point for Jesus in the story. Everything else in the feeding, all the teaching from that point on seems to be the overflow from that. That's important for Matthew that we see Jesus in his compassion respond. And if our view of Jesus doesn't start with compassion, we might be tempted to make him a weapon to fight our particular opinions. If our view of Jesus doesn't start with compassion, we might be tempted to turn him into a robotic teacher for us to study. And if our view of Jesus doesn't start with compassion, we might be tempted to form him in our image rather than the other way around. It is central to the story. Because he's already had compassion on the crowd. He's already watched them and looked upon them and said, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And this compassion of Jesus moves him to action, both in the healing and in the feeding. Because when the disciples suggest, hey, why don't you send everybody away? They can go get food on their own. Jesus denies the request. 
It would have been a perfectly reasonable thing to do, but Jesus in that moment sees an opportunity. Hey, let's, let's feed them. And I'm going to teach you a bigger lesson. It's such an important lesson in compassion for us to see the person in need. That's what we see Jesus do. He sees them. He sees the people. He doesn't just see their needs. He simply sees the people. Human beings, as we already talked about, the Imago Dei of God here on earth, and he has moved to compassion, to care. Stanley Hauerwas says this. He says, there is, therefore, a Christian way to feed the hungry that can be distinguished from those who feed the hungry for purposes beyond the feeding itself. Jesus has compassion on the crowd, so his desire to feed them comes solely from his love from them. Accordingly, those who would be his disciples need to learn how to feed the hungry in a manner that charity does not become a way to gain power over those who are fed. There is a violent and a nonviolent way to feed the hungry. And I think that's the invitation that Jesus sort of gives, at least in how he lives. That he con- the, the, the concentration, the focus here, the splach nitsomai, the compassion. That in that moment, he treats people with dignity, seeing them, not just their need, but the text even says he sees them. And the question is, do we do the same? Seeing a man who is experiencing homelessness, a woman talking to herself outside of Kroger, person experiencing disability of any kind, whatever it is, do we operate out of compassion because of the dignity of the other person. And then there's the provision of Jesus, not just the compassion, because we see Jesus provide here. The very answer to the prayer that he already taught his disciples to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Here it is. And there's promise. Jesus has various promises in his life. There's promises from God of some form of basic needs. But how does this provision take place? I don't know. I don't know exactly how this miracle happened. It's funny to think about all the different options that that could be there, speculate all you want. But but I'm wrestling with a a different kind of question. And I think this text gives us a little bit something to wrestle with too, because at some point, you, you gotta go, okay, did this miracle really happen, right? And if we have a God who could create a universe out of nothing, Hopefully, we're okay that he, he can do something like this as well. And you may be a, a doubter and a skeptic of these miracle stories, and sure. But, like, how many of you believe that this story could have and did happen, right? A lot of us, right? Okay. Now, let me ask a somewhat unrelated question. How many of you are worried about your daily provision and where things come from? Right? Like, your finances stress you out, how you pay your bills, all that kind of stuff, Right? Legitimate questions of financial security. Then at some point, who cares if you believe the miracle happened? And, and that feels heavy-handed, but like as James would say, then, then at times we're not different than the demons who, who recognize that Jesus can perform all these miracles, but it doesn't cause a, a true change. And perhaps we're practical atheists on this front when we look at the miracles of Jesus and then look at our lives. What good is believing a miracle happened 2,000 years ago in the way that God would provide for people that are hungry in a desert, and yet we struggle to really trust God to still provide when we can't always see it? 
It, sh- it should change the way we live. If we really believe that Jesus can make bread out of nothing for the most part, or at least a, a meager amount, then, then do we believe that he can help provide? That my stress about the finances is not believing that he'll take care of the birds and the flowers as well, and how much more would he take care of me? We get caught in the accuracy of the specifics of the question, but if some semblance of the story took place, how should it change the way you think about money or finances or provision from God himself? And perhaps even those in here that might be experiencing food insecurity or housing insecurity. But I think the invitation is still the same. Now, does that mean it shows up miraculously on the ground, like in the Exodus story, and then you can just go pick it up? It's like suddenly there's a hot meal that showed up out of nowhere. No, I'm not necessarily suggesting that. And we'll get to the how in a moment. But we also should look at the provision as more than just bread. Because constantly, from Old Testament into New Testament, bread is this symbol, this, this greater symbol of sort of a, a spiritual feeding. Uh, from Exodus on, it is a central idea. And the story works in very tangible ways about physical bread, but this bigger way. And, and John, as a gospel writer, will definitely make all those connections. But we've heard a story like this before, right? There's people wandering in a wilderness place and they're being fed out there in the wilderness. Where have we heard that? It's Israel, right? It's Israel's story in a little bit of ways. And Matthew, I think once again, he's been connecting Jesus to Moses through this whole gospel. And I think he's doing the same thing here. And before you think it's a stretch, John makes this explicit as possible to connect to the Moses story. He, he doesn't pull any punches to make it there. Even gospel writers will break the groups down into groups of 50 and 100 and stuff like that, which is all connected back to Sinai and how God would distribute the law. Now, let's talk about numbers because there's a lot of them in the story. If you listen to our two-year Bible podcast uh, at all, uh, one of the opening sort of little pre, pre-series, uh, I don't even know, prequels, uh, really dealt with numbers and how particularly Hebrew or Eastern people tend to view numbers, that they're, um, this is gonna sound so not Western, but um, they're, they're qualitative more than they are quantitative, um, which is funny to think of numbers as not quantitative. Uh, but numbers are rife with symbols, rife with meaning, all these different things. And so let's, let's just go through a few really classic numbers. Number one, when you think of number one in scripture, what do we think of? Yeah, like maybe the Shema, which is our God is one. Uh, it was central to, to the Israelites' idea. They, they were the monotheists or monolatrists in the world. Our God is one. Two, where do we see two of anything, particularly in the Old Testament? Noah's Ark, yeah, that's a good one. Where else? Yeah, two tablets. So God's agreement with his people involved two tablets that they had to share. What about three? We are certainly Trinitarian, yes, but even if you're uh, Old Testament people, if you're a Hebrew person, how would you think of three? Because they're not, they are not thinking Trinitarian. Where else do we see threes? Sure, yeah, yeah. God gets asked three times, multiple times. What else? Patriarchs, yeah, that's a good one. So uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob get listed a lot. So um, 
And sometimes it's the Levites and the priests and the Israelites. And there's, there's a lot of identification of three with community uh, for Israelite minds. What about four? This one's a little trickier. This gets to the prophetic words. If you look at a compass, what do you have? Four directions or four corners. And uh, even back then, they would have thought in, in quadrants. And so four tends to be actually outside. It's a lot of language used for Gentiles. Uh, what about five? Torah, beautiful. That would be 100% where most Jewish minds would go to. We have four books that are the definition of who we are as a people, or four books, five books that are the definition of, of who we are as a people. Uh, we even call it the Pentateuch, which Penta is five. Uh, so um, it's very much there. Six. Pick up sticks, is that what I just heard? <laughs> Sweet. That is a parent right there that just goes to that. Um, what else for six? Yes, number man. Yeah, it tends to think it tends to be connected with sinful man, particularly. It tends to be sort of this incomplete, sinful, broken, whatever those sort of language. What's seven? Yeah, we think of creation's story. It actually has carries with a lot of ideas of completeness. So as creation is sort of finished, is uh, it is it is sort of comes to a place where God's like, it is good, and I can take a break. Uh, seven, sort of the idea of completeness, but. It also carries with it a very negative idea, too. Uh, so uh, this is probably less known, but uh, the Canaanite people, there are seven nations in the nation of Cana, and they get listed many times, actually, in the Old Testament. And so if you are in a more Gentile territory or language or talking about Gentile things, seven can actually carry with it uh, a much more negative connotation. Uh, ten. This is a fun one. What? Commandments, yes, there's 10 commandments or 10 uh, words, uh, teachings. What else? That's a good one. Multiplication? Yeah. Yeah, we, we will deal with that a little bit because we're going to get to 1,000, which I think ties into some of that multiplication language. Uh, yeah, there's 10 virgins in the story. Yeah. It's also, I mean, you've got three, which we said before, this idea of community, and seven, or seven, which is the idea of completeness. It's also this idea of a, like a complete collection. Um, so it carries with us some of those symbols. Twelve, this one should be really easy. Twelve tribes, so God's people tend to be sort of the twelve. And then a thousand, which is three tens, so community ten times. Um, then it carries with, or three times, uh, three times community, so 10, which is complete community, three times, which is like just the multitude. It's, it's meant to symbolize a multitude. Just because something says a thousand in scripture doesn't mean you should necessarily take a thousand super literally. Uh, they might be using it symbolically to just say there was a multitude of people or a multitude of things uh, all over the place. So, the, so that's, that's what we do. Here's, here's a lovely little chart of, of some of these things. So those of you who are writing it down, you're like, I shouldn't have written it down. I could have just taken a picture. Um, but um, in, in Hebrew minds, a lot of numbers carry with it a lot of symbolism. And it does different things. So here's how it could play out. If we apply sort of this language, Jesus takes the law, five loaves, the book of Moses, two fish, the tablets. This makes the complete law, five plus two is seven. He gives it to his disciples. His disciples feed the people of God, the Jewish people, which is five books of Moses, times 10, the complete community of the people, times 10 times 10, so the thousand, 5,000. And when the people take it and eat, uh, and eat the law that they receive from the disciples, as they receive it from Jesus, there is more than enough for all of God's people, the 12 tribes and a basket left over. As if Jesus was simply saying, I am the second Moses. 
When you let me interpret the law and completely trust me with it, there is more than enough to go around for all of you. Now, you don't have to buy all this number business if you aren't ready to go there yet. But in a couple chapters, we're going to get another feeding. And it's going to have a whole other set of numbers. And immediately after that, his disciples are going to ask him a bunch of stuff that they're confused about. And Jesus is going to go, don't you remember the numbers? Don't you remember how many of each of these things there were? So there seems to be something tied into these numbers. Now, I'm going to let you hang on that for a few more weeks uh, until we get there. But there's something crucial, I think, about the numbers and why Matthew tells these two stories. And there's a transition story in the middle that we should focus on at some point, but we'll get there. Now, please don't turn this into Bible code. This is not a cryptic code hidden in the past pages of scripture. It's not an, uh, this is an objective lesson around how rabbis teach and speak in very Western or very Eastern ways. Please understand how easy it is to force this rule into numbers in the Bible, and it doesn't always work, but people try to. And so I want to be cautious as well to do it. But I think because of Jesus' pointing to these numbers, I think it gives us some questions to deal with. The last thing I think we should notice is the invitation from Jesus. I really love his interaction with disciples in the story. I would imagine there's a slight grin on his face when they, they come and, and they're like, Jesus, it's late. Send everybody home. I'm sure they're tired. We're tired. We're probably hungry too. We don't have anything to eat. And Jesus is like, no, don't send them away. You feed them. And I'm sure there is a slight joy, I would hope, in him in that moment. This crucial part of the story And Jesus invites his disciples into doing what he is being asked to do. Because Jesus could feed everybody instantaneously. He could be like, boom, and all the food is in their stomachs starting to be digested. He could easily do that, right? If he can make 5,000 loaves or whatever, feed 5,000 in this moment, he could certainly do stuff like that or make all the bread appear on everybody's lap as they're sitting. All those things could have happened, but that's not what he does. He says, hey, disciples, you guys do this. And this, I think, will be a theme more developed uh, in a couple weeks when Trey speaks on Peter's sort of walking on water moment. Because we've seen Jesus send out his disciples, say, hey, go to the lost sheep of Israel. I'm sending you out to go do the things that I have done. It's as if Jesus has empowered, commissioned, and trusted his people to do the very things that he is able to do. And I think that moment is happening here, and I think we'll see it a little more in a couple weeks. The problem is disciples are looking at sort of what's meagerly in front of them, right? There's very little. Five loaves, two fish. It's not going to cut it. But God's not limited by that. <laughs> he can take whatever meager things we bring to him in his hands, and they can be utilized for some incredible things. Robert Morrison, he was a missionary to China. And he couldn't find passage to China. He, he tried to go through the East India Company, but the East India Company was starting to have all sorts of rules that they couldn't take missionaries anymore and things like that. And so he actually went, came to the States after that. And he was met with a lot of cynicism. He was asked, do you really expect the impact to impact the mighty empire that is China? And he said, no, <laughs> but I expect God to. And Morrison, in his meagerness, was just bringing whatever limited resources he had and trusted God to utilize it for something mighty. Are you an okay musician? A decent cook? 
maybe. A better than average public speaker. Pretty good with money. Able to sing. Good with talking to strangers. Not too bad at hospitality. Great. Then God can use you. Any of our abilities, talents, skills, whatever, even if it's meager and average and unremarkable, five loaves and two fish of what we can bring to God can be incredible. But as with the bread picture, I think it works on spiritual levels too. Don't know a lot of theology. Don't always know where things are in the Bible, only memorize like Jesus wept or John 3.16 or just a few of the the well-known ones. I feel like most of what I say on a Sunday just goes totally over your head. Feel sometimes scripturally inadequate or don't know where to start. Great. God can use you. We watch time and time again in the Gospels. Some of the, some of the most incredible stories are people with just moments of information about Jesus. Moments. A woman at a well. A demon-possessed man in some tombs in the Gentile territories. And they're sent only with their testimony and an encounter with Jesus, and they impact their whole towns. And it's not to dismiss learning and growing and understanding and knowledge, but if you think that Jesus can't powerfully use you because you don't have a lot of training, a lot of knowledge, all these kind of things, I think this story would say, you're wrong. The story would tell you otherwise. I also remember years ago, Josh Ayers and I um, had a great conversation. Uh, I was going through the Gospel of John. We got to John's feeding of the 5,000. And Josh was writing dissertations around how nonprofits work and feed the hungry internationally, all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> and, and he challenged me a bit. So what, what does God's provision really mean to people who are starving and have no practical solution in their midst? And it was a great question. And I didn't have a good answer then. I probably still don't. But I do think part of the answer lies in this invitation in. How is God going to provide for the physically starving? Through his disciples. As much as they teach about spiritual hunger, they and we are invited into caring for physical hunger too. That's the invitation. There are sometimes such a want to bifurcate the the, the spiritual good news of Jesus and then the social good news of Jesus and go, this one's more important than this one. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus constantly cares about both. And any conversation that implies the gospel does not include a social justice component, I would argue is a Gnostic gospel. That it has separated the physical world from just a spiritual something else. That's just how the Bible speaks. And we're invited in with whatever we have to join Jesus in his mission to provide for the spiritual needs of the soul to tell people the good news of how God on a cross has dealt with sin, yours and mine, and through faith and belief, we can repent and believe in what Jesus has done and be reconciled to the Father. Absolutely. But also the physical needs of the body. 
What SNA Health does in providing healthcare for refugees is incredibly important. What Sarah does in teaching a class on Wednesday mornings is incredibly important. What Anna Briard does, taking care of foster placements, is incredibly important. What you and I do with sharing truths about the Bible in our life groups together is incredibly important. All of it. And in the hands of Jesus, who knows what's going to happen? And we as Christians, years removed from the story, so it all should be drawn to think about sort of this table right in front of us as well. Jesus took... He blessed it, he broke it, distributed it, gave it to others. Key ideas of the very thing we celebrate weekly together. Henry Nouwen in Life of the Beloved says, to identify the movements of the spirit in our lives, I have found uh, found it helpful to use four words, taken, blessed, broken, and given. These four words summarize my life as a priest because each day when I come around uh, the table, With members of our community, I take bread, I bless it, I break it, I give it. These words also summarize my life as a Christian because as a Christian, I'm called to become bread to the world, bread that is taken, blessed, broken, and given. More importantly, however, they summarize my life as a human being because in every moment of my life, somewhere, somehow, there's taking, there's blessing, there's breaking, there's giving. And the Gospel of John certainly shines light upon this table more than Matthew does in this moment. John 6, he will say, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And so we are two characters in the story at the same time. We are disciples invited to participate in the very mission of God, empowered by what he provides to serve and to love others. And we are the crowd, being fed by the very presence of Jesus, healed by Jesus, beloved by Jesus. People Jesus had compassion for, that he gave his body. He asked his father to forgive them, for we we know not what we do. And in our sin, He had compassion. And in giving his life, every time we come to this table, that his body was destroyed, like this bread. That he gave away, like this bread. He invites us in, and he takes, he blesses us as much as the bread, and gives us away to the world so that the world may find life. And because of his great compassion. It's a beautiful symbol that we celebrate here every single week. 